0: One of the greatest gifts of being a blogger or podcaster is the ability to give a voice to the voiceless. Meeting Charleston introduces Charleston's exciting local business minds to the community. And the Holy City Center takes everyday news stories, amplifies them, and puts them in a context that makes them easily digestible. It was never our intention to be a voice during moments of crisis. But based on the current events, both nationally and right here in Charleston, We want to share our platforms with those who are trying to be the leaders that our community needs.
1: We are here to bring our followers an open discussion and introduce them to some new voices that may be the local drivers for change as we move forward. Welcome to the Uniting Charleston podcast series. We hope you enjoy. Today we are sitting down with Kristen Graziano. She's candidate for sheriff of Charleston County in November of 2020. She has proudly served in law enforcement for over 30 years. She's a leader with a passion for the people that she serves, as well as those she stands with in service. She is dedicated to providing exceptional, honest, accountable, and transparent law enforcement services to Charleston County as the next Charleston County Sheriff.
2: So um, I grew up in upstate New York uh, at a very young age. My parents divorced and I moved to Virginia with my mother because her family was there. Oh, we moved to the Charlottesville, Virginia area um, <clears throat> in Virginia, growing up um, it was it was not an easy uh, transition for me and mainly because my family was so spread out i didn't have a relationship with my father. I had siblings that lived uh, with my father, which were all my brothers except for one, and I have you know six brothers, so all of my brothers lived. Um, Uh, with my dad and and uh, I was really close to them before we left and split up so for years you know my family was just separated I had my sister my youngest brother and myself and then the rest of them Uh, so I didn't have a relationship with them growing up so by the age of 16 um, I had mostly lived with my grandmother because my mother was was really uh, just too busy taking care of kids and I had I had things I wanted to do, and uh, I was very, very independent. I started hanging out with my grandmother, who made me go fishing with her every week. And we we grew up on the Chesapeake Bay, um, where where they, we had a beach house. And in the summers, I would spend the, my entire summer away from my fam, the rest of my family, the family that was in in, in Charlottesville. So. Uh, by 16, I was on my own, and um, and I was uh, self-sufficient. I was literally fishing for food and growing my own vegetables. Fact, fun fact: wow. I did not know a grocery. You could buy uh, uh, groceries or vegetables in a grocery store until college. I did not know that that w- that was a thing because I had never uh, really gone inside of a grocery store. Um, it, but I had also thought everybody had roadside <laughs> vegetables. That's so amazing. I thought that's where you either grew them or you bought them from the farmer up the street. So uh, this particular area that I grew up in, in Reedville, Virginia, um, where I spent my summers, uh, was very rural. So it was on the water and everybody lived on the water. So I just thought that was normal. It was very isolated. Amazing. Uh, so, um So, but... But by the age of 16, I was on my own. I actually moved out of my house, and I um, met some really good friends that were guiding me in a good direction. I thought a positive direction were being my surrogate parents that I didn't have. Um, and I was, I was in an apartment, and I walked to school um, you know, for my last couple years of school, put myself through uh, college at night, uh, at, the, at the same time, so by the time I finished high school, I also had a year of college uh, wow. behind me, and, and then I just, the sky was the limit, you know, I, I just wanted to do so many other things and not be dependent on others, which is kind of the, what my grandmother taught me, uh, so I ended up, um, after, after college, uh, struggling a bit in college. I think I was on academic probation my first semester because I didn't realize it was so hard,
0: sure, uh, yeah. so i uh i don't I think I had a similar experience yeah well, we won't talk about <laughs> it yeah. I mean
2: I'm not proud of it, but it was who i it was what I did it was who part I was. of your story it, yeah, it, it, um, and I really had to really regain my focus after that, and uh, you know uh, at one point in college, I scrounged up enough money to go back backpack through Europe and kind of do the things that uh, nobody is you know, that, that I knew uh, and my family had done, but I was going along with, you know, friends that I met along the way and I just got to see the world. And I just said there was more more out there than than what I had. And I had to make that way for myself. So um, I started investing in in real estate. I bought my first house with a dollar thirty seven in my checking account. Honest, True story.
0: Well, how did you pull that off and where were you?
2: In Virginia, so uh, I had really good credit. I knew that that was part of, you know, being able to, you know, open up doors for you later. And uh, I didn't have a lot of money um, saved up. I mean, I saved some, but I, but I also like to spend what I what I made, and I, I spent it on nice things that I wanted, you know, material things that I thought I wanted. But I was also really frugal about. Um, uh, how I spent it, and um, my grandmother always said, even if you're in your darkest days and you're uh, you're dirt poor and you have nothing, make everybody think you you look like and feel like a million bucks. So that was just the way I carried myself. And I I've slept in my car a few times. I've I've couch surfed with friends, but I always felt like and and acted like I was I was worth a million, and uh, so. That I think that attitude is, to me, it was it was it's laughable now, but that attitude is what carried me forward. And um, so, um, how, how did I do? The, I got a credit card. I got a credit card for the you know I finally applied for a credit card. I had good credit and I had a you know five thousand dollar limit, and I had a bank account. And uh, so I, I applied for this loan. They ran my credit check. After they ran my credit check, I, I took out $2,500, put it in the bank, left it there for 60 days, and used that oh, for wow. my down payment. So that's, that, that's how I did it. You can't do that now because, you know, they... they, they but, but the lending laws were different then. Uh, and, and I started to get involved in real estate. I started to learn about how, how to repair things. I love to destroy things. So the destruction aspect, you know, if I found something that needed to be repaired as you went and did it yourself. I did it myself and then I learned from people along the way how to do it, you know do things correctly, how to rebuild. So I just started uh learning that and enjoying it. Where were it was, you living at that point? That's awesome. In Virginia in, in Charlottesville.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. And then when did you transition to down here?
2: All right, so I didn't move here till 2002 when when I was offered a job at Charleston County, but I, I bought a house in 2001. I knew this is where I wanted to be. Uh, eventually, I fell in love with the city when I first came here. I was telling Nicole, I, I came down here over Thanksgiving, and I stayed at the round Holiday Inn. And I remember looking out that window going, ah, this is this is it for me. This is Charlottesville on the water. I love this. Yes. And and seeing the boats and growing up on boats all my life, you know, my first driver's license was a boat. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what I that's how I got to work. I, I wasn't old enough to go to the boat. I worked on charter boats, so I would drag my my 14 foot Starcraft metal boat with my Ted Williams seven <laughs> horsepower motor and fight the waves to get off the beach and then get around to the river to go to the to the creek where the boat was docked. At the age of eight, I was doing that, so i I knew how to get to work. it was not easy dragging a 14 foot starcraft metal boat on the beach but but that's that's what I did and uh so i I grew up fighting the waves and getting around to the creek so I could get to work safely uh, it, it, it was not fun when it was rough it was hard yeah. but yeah uh,
0: so when you say you got a job offer with Charleston County. What was that job offer?
2: It was working for the sheriff's office.
0: Okay, and so and how has your career gone through that time period till till recently when you left?
2: So right before I left Charlottesville, I was working in the city police department. Okay. So so after after school, um, uh, I didn't even fill out that application. My mother had decided that I needed to get a job, and um, and and I remember. you know doing filling out the application but then my grandmother always said make your application unique so uh I I balled it up and threw it in the trash yeah. and um my I guess my mother got it out straightened it out maybe ironed it probably sent it in and I got a phone call so um That's some good momming right there yeah um <laughs> because I wasn't sure where I wanted to go I, you know I, I loved what I was doing with Working for myself because by the time I finished high school, I had several houses and i was I was making money I didn't have to pay rent in high school in in college because I had this house that I own now, and there were, people were paying me rent, so I was living rent free so that enabled me to save money and and purchase more um It was not a short a, a slow process it took a while but but uh but over the years it just became you know, bigger and better. So I started investing in in businesses that were of interest to me. Music was a passion. Uh, uh, I grew up in the, my family was in the restaurant business. I swore it off. I said, I'll never do it. There was no way that I was going to get into the restaurant business. Sure enough, an investor comes to me and says, will you invest in this business? And and I liked the aspect that it had uh, live music seven days a week, and that's what they wanted me to focus on. Because I did music promotion too through all that, and I said, "Yeah." So I invested in it, and um, within the first year of, of opening uh, that franchise, we became we were the we got best of we got the best of place to hear live music music in the city. Awesome. So, and you were so, in New
1: York at this time, yeah, right? I'm still in Virginia. Oh, you're still yeah, in Virginia, Virginia. Okay. through yeah. college.
2: This is and 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 while I'm working as a police officer. Wow. So uh but then when I got the police job I actually had money that I could spend <laughs> so um so I was investing everything I earned at that point uh How,
0: what, what where was that shift from like I have money I'm going to spend and I'm going to buy myself nice things to I'm going to invest in real estate and be smart and disciplined about it cuz yeah you're right I mean Most people never get the discipline down of doing that and investing that sort of way. And the people who do, obviously, over time it compounds and you become wealthy. But how how did, who taught you that, like, or who showed you that path? Or is it just in you?
2: I think it was just in me. I think um, I had watched probably an infomercial way back when. um, when It says, you should make, you can make money if you invest in real estate. And uh, I didn't, it didn't process with me other than, That was a passion. I loved, you know, investing in things and building things. So, um, and I think it just became one of those things that I really, really enjoyed when I started to make money doing it. Uh, First of all, it was survival for my first house because I couldn't afford to pay rent and go to college. Uh, So it was, I had to make a decision. Let me buy this house, rent the rooms. That way I don't have, it. in my head, it sounded good. That way I don't have those expenses and it'll enable me to pay for college. I never got a loan. I never got a loan for college.
0: I know, we're using that. I mean, that's an exceptional amount of creativity to solve that problem for that age. Like, without, like, I mean, I... Is it,
2: or is it progressive thinking? I mean, that's Well, yes,
0: but what I'm saying is, I think think you're 1% in that situation. How do I go to college? I can't afford rent. Um, Let me use a credit card with good credit to buy a house and have people rent it for me. Like, that's a... That's a long road without some sort of real guidance to go on on your own, right? Like, I, my, One of my big regrets is that when I went to college, I didn't buy a house and rent it to my friends. It seemed like a no-brainer. I had no idea how any of that stuff worked. I, I'm, in, I'm in housing now, right? I've been the mortgage for 15 years. So I look back, I go, how did I not know that? But I didn't know. Well, how did, yeah. Part of that so. was
2: being naive, I think, and, yeah. and, and thinking, you know, this is going to work and not accepting anything less than that. And then working towards that end goal, I, it wasn't easy. Like I made mistakes along the way, but one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever gotten from my grandmother was, "Don't make the same one twice." So learn from that and move forward. So that's what that's what has always kind of guided me. Um, but I didn't have that that somebody nudging me saying, "Hey, here's you know here's a little bit of cash, go invest it." I wish I did. I wish it'd been that easy. Uh, but what I did have were opportunities that then enabled me to do that. And uh, my second house that I bought, I didn't think I'd be able to get, and, and I bought it within six months, I didn't think I'd be able to get a loan. So I started looking for people selling that I could give a little money to and then let them take back a note on mortgages. So that's how I did the, the second. And then the third one was easier because now I have portfolio a, a portfolio coming in. So you, you start building and building and I built up, and right before I moved here, I sold almost everything in Virginia. Um, and that enabled me to pay cash for, for you know, a place and not have to worry about a huge mortgage or, or issues, you know, related to that. Because I didn't know if I was going to move here full time. I wanted to. That was the end goal. But I really just didn't, I wasn't Sure. Sure so uh, this was you know going to be home at some point uh, but I didn't know it would happen within six months of buying a house it was probably about yeah six months from when I bought to till, till I actually moved here
0: and so then you get here what's your first job that you have here like job yeah. title <laughs>
2: I'm deputy sheriff okay yeah. and that's so, the same
0: job you've been doing this whole time
2: yeah so I was yeah a police officer for about 14 years
0: okay yeah. and so I'm just I Maybe my questions are, I'm sure, my, I don't know anything about like the hierarchical structure of or how career advancement works and what you were doing to get to where you were. So I'm just, how do you, so you, have we had different sheriffs over the time that you've been working in the sheriff's office here? Like, and, and is that something, or is it? No, what's, so what's it's, it's been here? the
2: same sheriff. I, I was telling Nicole earlier, I interviewed with a couple different agencies here locally yeah. and uh, they just didn't, it did, it didn't feel right uh for me because i was coming from a pretty progressive city uh and i loved where i worked i loved my jobs and uh it was it was it had to be the right fit so when i came here and met folks in charleston county uh they actually called me i did not know charleston county sheriff's office was a a thing i i was thinking police you know sure um and they actually contacted me and I must have reached out through email or something and then they actually called me and I went in and met with them and immediately uh, I, felt, I felt the connection. I said, you know, they had, they had everything I wanted. It was full service. They had the Marine unit, they had SWAT, they had all the things that were of interest to me, especially the boat. So that, that was like, that was the carrot that yeah. they dangled.
0: So for people who don't know, and like where I come from, we don't have sheriffs, I don't think that same way. Um, what's the difference between that department and the regular police department? What are they responsible for? How does that work?
2: So here it's similar. Uh in most sheriff's office, probably where you came from, and I know New Jersey's probably probably a good example. Uh sheriffs are the civil process servers. They run the courts and the jails and the civil process end of of, of law enforcement. Um the police do the actual criminal investigation, criminal aspect of it. So, in in up north where I'm from, that's the case. Or I say up north. I'm still south of the Mason-Dixon line, but <laughs> you get it because because Jersey has that. Um, but around the country, a lot of a lot of municipalities or counties have have merged, and the, the sheriff has become the full service, uh, and they do all of the law enforcement, all of the civil process, the courts, the jails. So they have, have a, absorbed the law enforcement end of it. That is also true in wow. places like Florida and th- LA. Throughout throughout the country, that's true. Um, and that happened here in the 90s. There was a separation. There was a county police, and then there was a county sheriff. And again, the county sheriff did the the county sheriff stuff they did the courts and they sure. did the jail and in in the 90s that's that that when that merged they they formed the sheriff's office they absorbed all that so the county police was gone and, and everybody was absorbed into the sheriff's office uh, now it's different because the municipalities the city in north charleston mount pleasant iop uh, sullivan's island all these municipalities have their own police, police department to serve their jurisdiction
1: Is that more of a natural evolution of the department in these cities that that happens with, or did something happen in the 90s that caused? um...
2: A decision was made, I suppose, by county council to to, uh, to disband the police department and merge it into a sheriff's office. And that's where my boss um, ran for that position, and he won. And he's been there ever since.
0: So, how many years has he served?
2: Uh, Thirty-two years.
0: And wow. what was the? So, well, tell us why you decided to run.
2: So, um, I, I, there were a lot of things. My, my life is a series of adventures. Okay. Sure. So, this is just one of the adventures. I, I'm a risk taker, um, and and I, in my heart, I, I had to do this, and what happened in 20 some series of things happened but from 2014 to 2018 was like life changing for me so um 2014 i uh was was working contemplating my career sure. like i was no longer happy putting on a uniform i was really enjoying working in the schools and i got removed from the schools and uh, that sense of fulfillment, that, that joy that I felt not going to work every day in the school system uh, was was a difficult transition for me. So it, in 2014, I was working an off-duty job at, at the beach in Seabrook Island, and um, to make this very long, drawn-out s- story short, uh, a man was drowning, and I went in the water, and I helped get him... To shore, um, and I remember um, his wife and his grandkids. They're from Michigan, and I remember his looking at his grandkids on the beach and telling just some total stranger to please take them away because he was at that point not alive, and and his wife and I remember just grabbing her, and um, but prior to that moment the beach is where I get my peace. And I was driving up and down the beach uh, contemplating my next move. Like, what, what is my purpose? And I couldn't figure it out. And and I didn't know if I wanted to to, to go uh, jump into my business and, right. and make that work again. It, it, it was working. It still is. Uh, or if I needed to find a new purpose. And that day I found it. Um, because I realized that my impact on people—sorry, this is this is tough—my impact on people stretches far beyond um, what I was there for. And and I remember grabbing that lady and getting on our knees and just praying, and 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 having this moment. And um, he ended up living, and he was in intensive care for uh, a, a month here he had just retired from a job um and they were here on vacation with their family and I that moment changed me because I then had a purpose so I said I need to stay I need to stay the course I need to not think about that but this I have to look at the big picture Mm -hmm. so from that moment on I wanted to to be involved more in the community and be involved more with the youth, which I, which I've always done, you know, and 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 um, and then 2018 happened, the midterm elections, and I saw all these incredible minority, mostly women, stepping forward. The young, the Gen Zs, I call them. They are the heroes of our of our world. They are going to change the world. But these, I saw these people step forward, and I'm thinking, you know, by then it's almost 28 years into this. What again what is my purpose what 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 do I want to leave behind well my goal is to leave this world a better place for my kids than when I got here so i had to work towards that goal and then when the midterm elections came i was inspired i was like something there something happened and i said this is it this is this is what we need to do i'd been talking about it for a while i had been approached um about it I knew this is what we needed to do. So at that point, I formed um, a team. And for, for the last two years, we've been working uh, behind the scenes to, 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 to really focus on, on the message and, and what we need to accomplish. Because being in, being in that position and being in law enforcement, it, there are inequities, and I know that. And I, and I see it, but my voice is not loud enough. It never has been. Uh, no matter how much I speak out or who I speak to or my silent protest that I, I've done so many times, it was never enough. And I didn't have the people behind me to say enough's enough. Um, it, it, but but other people see it, too. Even inside, they see it.
0: Yeah, of uh, course. It's just so hard. We could, we'll talk a lot about that, I think, but... Um institutionally it is set up to make it very difficult to uh, to speak up in those situations right I mean it's impossible it's impossible it's
2: impossible because there is a real fear of retribution and people have families to feed and they have you know I didn't get into this work going I'm gonna go I'm gonna put on a uniform and go you know show my behind and tell people how great I am I didn't that's not why we get into it we get into it because we really, the, the naiveness coming back out again. We really think we can change the world. Sure. We really want to do something in our community, and, and most of the people in that position do. And they they really think that they're going to make a difference. And and then you get in there and you go, Jesus, what was I thinking? You know, What is wrong with these people? Why can't we do these simple little uh, acts of gratitude to show people that we care and that we can help them? Uh, because there are repercussions for everything you do. And, and um, you, have to, you have to remain neutral. You can't have an opinion.
0: So I understand from your own perspective, wanting to make a difference, a calling for it, um, and seeing some of those things that, that you wanna change. But what specifically do you think you would do differently when you get in there that would be the most significant to um, the actual community's experience in dealing with our police department? Or our sheriff's office, I should say.
2: So I've always maintained from from day one going publicly. The reason I'm not in uniform right now is because I publicly, publicly uh, not even stated, I just wrote that there are inequities and, and there's a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability in our profession and that it wasn't fair, our practices weren't fair, and we needed to work. To resolve that and that's what I intend to do. I still maintain that. I, I, I know that my biggest challenge uh, going in is going to be changing that organizational culture that exists. I, I can't do it by myself and I can't do it without the people right now speaking loudly and and not remaining silent with me to make that happen because my voice is never going to be big enough against an institution that, that has existed way before I, I became a police officer, but one that I have witnessed inequities, and if I spoke out, you know, there were repercussions. So you have to be, it's its, just, it's this um, very fine line that you, you have to teeter and you have to walk, and, uh, you know, I think about everything going on now um, especially since the 25th of last month and George Floyd getting murdered on live TV. But why are we acting now when we had this happen in our own backyard five years ago and, and we didn't do anything, uh, one agency did, we, but we didn't do anything and we kind of avoided the problem because in the past, it's always gone away. Eventually, the cries, the cries stop. Eventually, uh, the, the crowd dies out and eventually we go silent again this time is different. And uh, this is what we need right now to not, this is the time not to go sound, this is what we need right now to actually put these words into action. I'm tired of the talk, I'm tired of it. So,
0: you know, we've certainly had a bunch of people on here, we've had our own conversation just about what those actions are. If you had to pick one or two things and whether they're things that you will actually have control over or not individually should you uh, win, what are one or two things that you think are the first things that need to change in order to give us nationally a shot at changing the culture within law enforcement?
2: But, well, when I win, the two, the two, that. the two most important things, we have to have a report card from an unbiased, uh, independent eye that that tells us how we're doing. Because until we know how we're doing, we don't know what we need to fix. Nobody has ever reached out to the sheriff's office and said, "Go get it." A racial uh, biased audit they haven't done that because the sheriff doesn't answer to, to anybody except the voters so nobody's put pressure on the most powerful law enforcement position in the country and and demanded that they have with the chiefs and the mayors and that has resulted in great things for the city uh police department but not so great for north charleston who's Four years in
0: a row, I've heard they've turned down.
2: uh, Yeah, once again, avoiding the issue and postponing and delaying because it's worked for them. You know, it's gone away. Our voices have gone silent. Um, But nobody's asked the sheriff's office to do that. And I think that is the most practical and reasonable um, and necessary thing that we have to do is to figure out how we're doing and why we're doing it and and how we're doing it
0: so when you win first time we're doing this we're getting day
2: day one we have got to get this this done secondly we are not putting people i heard and this infuriates me but i heard um a, a comment made during a news conference with with the leader of that department that uh, we have great diversity, and we have, especially in the jail. You should take a look at the jail stats. But in law enforcement, we're not that lucky because we just can't get people. Bull. <laughs> we can. We don't. We don't reach out to communities that that uh, to recruit people in our own communities. People are. People asked me the other the other uh, week. You know what. Um, is our, is our you know, gr- you know, greatest challenge in doing that. Well, we haven't tried first and foremost. And then we put these, uh, th- these things in place where, these barriers in place where we're them to have a degree. Well, some of our greatest advocates and some of our greatest people in the community don't have that chance to go get a degree or they're working on it, but it's taking them longer. I was you know, one of those people I worked on my degree as I was working, so so I didn't have student debt. So we we can't put these barriers up that, that don't allow us to bring people that are qualified, that want to do the work, that want to be a part, of, that want to serve uh, in a place that keeps them from serving. So we, we have to focus on creating a division of diversity that makes sure that we recruit, because I think that's where it's going to start. That's where the change is going to start, and that we bring people in uh, that want to serve their community versus the people that have been there. So what is that going to entail? It's going to entail a lot of restructuring. We need to remove the layers at the top, because the layers at the top are insulating the elected official from being in touch with the people. And if we don't remove those layers and those barriers from the messaging getting out as to where we're going, instead of depending on, you know, five different voices in the community saying, "Hey, you should come work for us because I don't know, you you look like you might be a good cop." Uh, we need to we need to actually do it. We need to go we need to go into these communities and we need to we need to put people in the communities that are representative of those communities, people that can relate they relate to the struggle, they relate to the issues. They relate to the culture, and, and once we do that, uh, we start building those relationships back up, and we build, we bring our community back into what we do, because we can't do it without them. Sure. And people don't, and, and the officers will tell you that we need their support. They don't want to go to work every day being hated because they're wearing a badge. They, they don't. They honestly – but they can't say anything. They're not allowed. So it's it's just – it's yeah, incredibly so how, so frustrating. So is,
0: is there is – there, are there legislative things or uh, things that can come down, you know, from individual mayor's offices or from the sheriff's department where we can do something to incentivize, you know, first lot. I, I this good and bad cop thing, I think – you know, anytime we start to talk about good and bad, I think we're, we're, we're ignoring all of what's real, which is that uh, this is there is a large spectrum here of people and every one of them is probably doing what they think is right. No one. I, I watched an interview recently with one of the leaders of the KKK where he's literally in the middle of saying racist things and then says, but I'm not a racist. I don't think anyone thinks they're racist. I don't think racism has to be intentional for it to be systemic and awful. So. But how do we make it so that the people who want to really make a difference here and clean things up and want to work with people that they trust to protect the community when we're at, when they're out on the street, um, how do we incentivize those people to make it safe for them to say something? Is, is there is there, a, is there something that we can do to to make those people heroes as opposed to villains within their own departments?
2: So, yes, the answer to that is yes. We give them a voice. We give them an, an opportunity to, to, st- to state how they feel. Now, um, some of those statements, if they're offensive or they sound racist, you know, it's easy to change somebody's mind. It's really easy to say, hey, if you say that again, you're fired. But it's really hard to change what really counts, and that's really how they feel inside their heart. So uh, I have been working on with throughout all the COVID and through these protests with youth individuals that have been that I know have been targeted uh, in and have been arrested and or have had experiences in the criminal justice system that just are not uh, reasonable for any for any person. It wouldn't happen. It honestly wouldn't happen if they were if they were white. And I, and I know that that it exists, but listening to their stories and having those stories told to the people that are really that are making those decisions, cops have an, an enormous amount of discretion, enormous. Uh, you know, we're bound by, by by law on how we act and how and how we respond to somebody that may, maybe violates the law. law but it doesn't say that we have to arrest them every time. We have an enormous amount of discretion to to um, engage that person and try to resolve whatever is going on. And uh, I think I think that when we start mandating counseling and ma- mental health for cops that that helps and and we start mandating s- sort of I don't what we call it sensitivity type training, and bring these programs in where they have to sit with people that have been on the other side to see the damage that it's caused them. And when you start working and putting them back in the communities to mentor these youth and making that part of their job, so they get paid to go play baseball with these kids. They get paid to go on the basketball court. They get paid to coach, you know, a youth sport in their community. And if they're doing that, they're becoming a part of that community. And they're seeing and recognizing, I think, at that point, that we're all in this together. We all want the same things. We all want safer communities. We all want to be to live in peace. And we all, all want to be treated equal. So and I think until we're able to do that and really give them, uh, empower them to go out and say, hey, uh, this is your beat. This is where you're going to be working. I want you to go. Introduce yourself to everybody in there and see what they need from you, how you can help, you know, get get this program they're trying to do off the ground. Not just go to the schools, visit and display your, your toys so everyone can say, oh, we got to walk up, sit in a police car and turn the lights on. No, that's not enough. Get out of your vehicles, get off your laptops, get off your phones and go meet people face to face. That's the only thing that's going to put them in touch with these communities. And the communities want that. They do. They don't want to fear the police.
0: So what what happened to you when you said you were running? When you
2: announced that you were going to be a candidate for this job? Well, I never announced um, formally. Um, but what happened was a phone call was made after a, a post was put on a website uh, about, you know, my, my concerns over inequity and, and fairness and transparency and accountability those things are very important to me and it's kind of like we we should we're representing the community we should be out there and people need to know these are what these are the things we're doing and this is you know we, we already know we're accountable we already know as cops going into it that we're going to be held our feet are going to be held to the fire we have checks and balances uh in the legal system that are in place so if we don't do what we're supposed to do we're going to get in trouble
0: I, so that's it I wouldn't normally interrupt you but my individual experiences not that not that not, by the way I believe that is a small sample size um, but even with like seeing instances where I was with cops who are friends and their own individual accountability or uh, the wives of cops and I've seen those people treated very differently You talk about your discretion and how mm-hmm. those things are done you know. I have not had the sense. And when you watch that George Floyd video, you certainly don't have the sense that there was any sort of a fear of accountability. Those people knew they were on video. They And forget the guy who actually did it. It's about, for me, the more horrifying thing was that three other police I understand one crazy cop. Three cops watching it happen strikes me as people who are definitely not concerned with accountability. Um, and so just a, I just I challenge you on that, which is to say, like, from my per- limited perspective, it would appear that whatever accountability is legally available to the community that people are supposed to hold those all enforcement people accountable um, is not, is usually not being exercised and people certainly are not living on day-to-day fear of it and you know I, I don't know what the stats are, but it seems to me like um, you know there it makes it makes huge news when someone loses their job in one of these places because it's so uncommon. Right. But we know these things of inequity are happening every day, but it doesn't seem like it's happening very often. But again, I have a limited perspective. So I guess that's a loaded question of just saying, like, am I completely wrong there? And because uh, and just sharing your thoughts on it, I guess. Yeah.
2: So what what you witnessed and what we all witnessed. Um, and I can tell you the physical response that I had to that. I, I tried to kick my TV to kick the guy. You know, I, I wanted to kick his teeth out. Um most people would do that, and, I, and I'll tell you an experience I had locally not too long ago that kind of goes to the mindset. But um, so clearly, that was a murder, and clearly um, people didn't act and didn't act responsibly. And you're right; I think they knew they were being videotaped. You could see the you know people yelling at them, holding their phones up. Uh, it was just a horrible, horrible situation. I, I don't know why that mob that wanted to. Um, didn't didn't stop it, but I do know because they didn't stay afraid because they're afraid because they're afraid. So that same fear exists within. Um, when you have, and I say limited. Now these guys were rogue. Uh, this one guy at least was rogue. The other one was just inexcusably uh, absent. He just didn't do anything. The other two, I you know I didn't see until later, but I didn't realize there were two other people on him. On the other side of that car until much later and I don't think a lot of us knew that uh, but that even infuriated me more because there was absolutely no reason for for that to happen um but why did but why why it was George Floyd on the ground to begin with and and I remember that a comment or statement came out in the report that when he was brought to the car peacefully when he was walking and doing what he was supposed to do he said something about being cla- claustrophobic and when when he said he wasn't getting in that car, he had a real fear. They didn't listen. Yeah. Um, so I had that very same experience in in the Isle of Palms um, at three o'clock one morning. It was a few months ago, actually, right before I was let go. Uh, I got called at three o'clock in the morning for a, a, a somebody with a crisis, um, mental crisis, and I was on call that. That night so I got up and I got there and as soon as I get there these very nice uh, officers were talking to this guy who was obviously distraught. They, I'd learned it, they'd been there for a few hours. We have a, um, um, a mobile crisis unit um, through mental health that travels to the scene and actually evaluates them and they were they were everybody had already been there. I was the last stop you know they, they get the paperwork they need and then I just come transport him as part of my duties. And I had that that very same experience. First thing I asked was, does he know he's going to the hospital? The answer was no. So I'm thinking de-es- de-escalation. I got to be prepared to like start talking this, you know, this game to keep him at a level that was, that, that we could maintain, that would be safe. But so uh immediately i called one of the younger officers over and i said look this is what we're going to do and i told him what we were going to do and i'm just going to put his arms in restraints on his waist so that he can't punch me and then i'm going to walk him to the car and we're going to talk and and we're going to keep engaging him and tell him i'm going to tell him what's going on i'm going to show him the paper i don't want to elevate this because it had been going on for a while so we get to the car and, and, and the waist chains went on. Everything was fine. He was a little hesitant, but he walked. And the officers, one on each arm, kind of forced him. I said, stop. You know, stop. I, I grabbed his arm and just kind of arm in arm, we walked uh, to my car. He got to my car and he said, I'm claustrophobic. And I said, well, you know, I need to take you here. I said, I can't help you anymore. You need help. That's beyond my scope. I can't. I, I want you to get the help you need. And we had this conversation. The foot goes up on the on the side of the car, and then it's on. He is not getting in that car. So the two nice gentlemen that were with me start trying to force him, and I have to stop them and say, stop, this isn't going to work. And, and it takes, you know, individuals like that to say, this isn't going to work anymore. The things that we want to accomplish, we need to think a different way. We need to do it a different way because this could go bad really quick. Well, as soon as I said that, he kicked me and just right into the shin, and I was like, "Ouch!" You know that that yeah. that's terrible. All right, let me put some leg irons on him so that he can't kick me anymore. We already have his hands restrained. He could get a, you know he could get me if he wanted to, but but he was limited. And so I put him on the ground and and put leg irons on, and while I'm on the ground, I'm not even on him, you know, they're holding him down, and I'm putting the leg irons on, he whispers those words, I can't breathe, and I just, I thought of Eric Garner, and I immediately said, on your feet, guys, help me get him up, get him up, and we just held him up, and I was able to, within the next hour, get an ambulance I just I just stood him up and stood with him and I told everyone else to back off and um uh, and then we got an ambulance to him and they they were able to transport him safely to the hospital so but but that's that's what we should do I I but,
0: I agree my, my, but my
2: experience tells me this and and, and the younger guys I, I was with their experience doesn't tell them that this guy that killed uh, George, George Floyd, Floyd yeah. he had the experience to know better. He had, he well, knew killed, better. He's killed other people in the line of duty. Yeah, well, so I don't know any of that, but I'm not surprised. I'm yeah. not surprised. Why he was wearing a badge to begin with, I, I'm not, I'm not real sure. Uh, anybody that doesn't see. But the let, brute but, but brutality in that just
0: doesn't have a heart. So, but that's really my question. So, you mentioned you mentioned police. You you and you said it kind of like is like it's like um, it's been it's been it it lives within you. I can tell the way you said it was like yeah, we know we have accountability. What I'm what I would argue is that I think that one of the things that people are most upset about is public perception. My individual experience, even like I said, I have friends who are in law enforcement who I think sometimes without even knowing it, cavalierly talk about how they don't really feel like they have that accountability or occasionally they'll point out like the one or two cases they know of where like they felt like somebody was unfairly held accountable. But, um, and so when you say that there's this accountability, how, how, who has to push it and how far for that accountability to really kick in and who's responsible for it? Because, you know, we, we can't, we don't have a situation where we have, you know, you can't have the local prosecutor holding the local police department accountable because those people work together every single day. And then if that prosecutor does that, no other police officers will work with that prosecutor ever again. And so there are, you know, this this seems to be maybe the the biggest issue is if let's say you have a horrible experience with the police officer, who do you tell that's going to care and investigate it and, and how and how do we hold those people accountable?
2: Well, And, and that's. A part of the problem, and, and there they do have some uh, avenues to, to report. And in our particular department, probably um, having an, an internal affairs unit um, that oversees those types of complaints um, is is essential. But but it's not enough, and, and it's it's just we have to have avenues that people feel freely to speak. Without having um, been judged by their own uh, colleagues, and and fear that if I need help and my life's in danger, is this guy going to come help me now because I told on so and so, and and that is a real fear. Now, I'll tell you, I have never learned a chokehold. I have never learned to put my knee on somebody's neck. We've always been told no. It's you know this is off limits. Head up is off limits, um, and we all know that. So I don't know, even 30 years down the road, I've never, ever seen a, a chokehold or anything like that being trained as an acceptable method. So, and so, and I, hear, so I hear people saying all the time, well, we're going to outlaw chokeholds. Well, who does that? Right. Who who has them to begin with? That shouldn't have happened. And now I'm learning that other agencies, it's acceptable. Sure. So uh, there are things that, uh, yeah, that we definitely need to, to improve we need to allow officers to come forward if they witness this and and put this in, in their put, put make it them accountable if they don't if they witness something and they don't speak they're accountable uh, if they if they uh are are in fear for whatever reason because of what everyone calls it the, the blue wall is going to think um so so be it. we need to remove those barriers and so, so, in in police academy and 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 throughout my entire career, I've always been told, you know, you you have uh, you you need to account for everything you do, and um, so in our minds, going in based on our training, we react a certain way based on the way we're trained. I've been trained a lot over the years, so my training has changed and, and my skills have changed, and I. And I'm more empathetic and I and I you know, I like I, I I read pe I like to think I read people better now. A lot of kids, these younger kids don't don't have that yet. So what you know, what do we have to do to make sure that they don't get themselves hurt, uh, and put themselves in harm's way because they fail to act a certain way, because they didn't act enough. And I think we're getting we're you know, there there's a big fear, there's a huge fear among uh the younger generation of that and, and how do we hold those accountable um, that overreact? For instance, not, not George, George Floyd. That was a, that's murder. That's murder. But, but there are other things that happen, like slapping somebody in handcuffs or um, you know, manhandling somebody uh, once they're handcuffed and maybe they give you a little resistance and really, manhandling them, throwing them back to the ground to tell them who's boss. So there, we have got uh, to get out of this mindset. And that's why I said it starts with the culture. This culture that has been cultivated over years before me, but but over the years that I've been here, I've seen improvements in it, but it still exists. And it's so deep-rooted. You have no idea. It starts at the top. And it starts with me. And if I don't you know, hold these people accountable for their actions, and, and and nobody holds me accountable for not holding them accountable. We've we've set ourselves up to failure. For failure.
0: So I just have a couple we we're we this has been going on a long time. I've a couple quick questions for you. But um the uh we got a little background noise, but uh it should be going away in a second. So hang out, listeners. But uh that way you can add it so much later. <laughs> but uh so how do How does a campaign for sheriff work um How many people do you have working with
2: you and if we wanted to support you, how do we do it? all right so um I have never done this before so i uh I hired a staff that was uh, very seasoned in politics. I'm not a politician I'm a citizen servant, so I'm having to learn that there are things that I can and can't do uh, to be effective. well, I call everybody bluff because I do things my way and I do it because I relate to people so uh, the campaign for sheriff works that we I've hired a staff Uh, we're pushing our message out the best that we can I'm in the community I have my finger on the pulse I understand the issues and I'm willing to look in the mirror and say that we're not always right and we need to fix things Um, to do this we need money so we have to raise money uh at a ridiculous rate but we are doing it and we need to keep that going so that message gets pushed out on every platform so through covid-19 <clears throat> i stopped asking i i just i couldn't uh, in good faith do that and i have um mm-hmm. uh, been pretty much um funding funding myself uh, or not spending money to get these messages out and, and having my team do the work. Um, and, but, but as that changes and as people go back to work, we will start asking. So they log on to my website, kristenforsheriff 2020com There's a place to read about uh, my vision, uh, my commitments to the community, um, and also to donate. Um, and, and I would encourage anybody... Uh, to, that that wants to dive deeper into certain issues, they can send an email uh, to my campaign, and we will set up kitchen. We're doing kitchen roundtables right now, virtually. It's awesome. So, uh, uh, you know, just uh, last week, last month I did mixers. So we did, um, we hosted a series of um, keeping our bartenders at work that were out of work. So wow. they would fix their favorite drink adult version, kid version, and people would come on, and, and uh, the cost for a ticket was $20.20. 20 awesome. So, But it was an hour of fun. We got to meet new people, um, got to meet our local bartenders and hear their stories about uh, them being out of work, and and they got to ask me questions, but uh, but more importantly, bringing the community back in into what we do. So that's what we're doing now. I don't know that we'll ever get to what I don't know to be normal because I've never done this before, but this is my normal um, is, is is getting out on social media and engaging as many people as possible. All
0: right, cool. So we like to uh, ask some fun questions here at the end. Where are your favorite places in Charleston to go out to eat?
2: Um. so uh, I love a new place called Spanglish.
0: Okay. Where's uh, that at? And that's
2: in West Ashley uh, on St. Andrew's Boulevard. It's, Right as you come across the bridge, on the right, it's been five or six different restaurants since I've been here, but the food there's phenomenal and it's authentic, and it's uh it's is, it's it's almost Caribbean, but it's a Spanish version of Charleston. That's it's awesome. It's it's, it's really good. Um, environment's great. People are great. Local um, local folks that used to work in other restaurants that unfortunately um you know they opened up right before covid so i think they're doing well i think i've seen you know we've had carry out there um i love everywhere downtown um i'm a i'm a salty mice kind of girl okay
0: (laughs) so if we catch you at the bar and we want to buy you a drink what's your drink of choice
2: um a uh awesome
0: all right we'll do that well
2: Do you have any other questions, Nicole? I don't. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Good luck in your campaign. And again, what was that website if people want to donate? It's
2: kristinforsheriff2020.com. It's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. Awesome. Forsheriff2020.com.
0: Perfect. Good luck in your campaign, and uh, uh, maybe we'll have you back on after you win.
2: Thank you, Mark. I will win, and I'll be back. Awesome. Thank you so so much.